I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Welcome to episode 30, Love Edition. I began exploring my thoughts for this episode back in February when there was still ice on the ground and a chill in the air. And I had a great longing to understand some things. And I think always how funny it is, these disclaimers that prompt these episodes, considering how I used to be able to shell them out every other week when I was 21 and 22. And I think that's because I was learning these lessons and I had my eyes wide open to the world in a way that I could sprint and synthesize and sprint and synthesize and build up my world and then tear it down in what seemed like a Tetris game. It was just growing pains and revelation and growing pains and revelation. And I think that since the year began, I've entered into a completely different era of my life. And I'm learning the ways that patience can produce a wholly different kind of revelation than I had ever experienced in all of my rushing and running and synthesizing. Because the longing I had was not just for a fleeting comfort or an expansion of my understanding, but I began to have this need to really see things. I think that I can liken it to, if you've ever seen a horse race, I mean, really up close in person, and they put these blinders on horses because as they're running, if they didn't have these blinders on, then they can be instantly distracted or respond to stimuli around them and they wouldn't be able to just go. And I liken that to my life for a while because I feel like for years, immediately when I got out of college, I just began to sprint. And if I hit a hurdle or a roadblock, then I would just push through it to move over it. And it was something that I loved about myself for so long. And I know you're probably thinking now, Bianca, we're four minutes in. What does this have to do with the love edition? What does this have to do with love? I think for a long time, perhaps my whole life, I desired so much to be loved as everybody does. And I, I was so deeply romantic towards the world and towards people that I was able to embrace and superimpose that sprint to just take people in exactly as they were, saying, come as you are. If you want to be loved, I want to love you. And I was so enveloped in the grandiosity of love and not just romantic love, but friendship as well. The possibility for adventure and the possibility for understanding and a love of beauty and to find in people their greatest beauty and most evident strength and to highlight that. And I think that that for so long was how I loved. And I think for so much, I began to write a book years ago and I said that I spent so long trying to figure out in my young life what it was that people love when they loved me. And I think that that thing that I love so much about young me, that tenacity and that sprint and that ability to just overlook the quirks and hardships was the thing mirrored in the world that the people I loved also loved about me. The way that I was able to make myself feel like I could do anything. And I gave that permission to everybody around me to make them feel like they could do anything and be anybody that they wanted to be. My belief in miracles that could make somebody else, even the most faithless or cynical or frustrated of persons, believe in miracles too. And I asked the question, what do others love when they love you and I was looking for that so that I could hone it and keep it and grow it and understand it and not just out of a need to be loved but out of a fear of being manipulated out of a fear of being desired for the wrong reasons so I I prodded this question for years of my young life and my fixation on the question had me overlook all of the obvious 
I mean, truly obvious issues with operating in that mode of inquisition. Because when you desire to understand why others love you without primarily inquiring as to what you love about yourself, you begin completely unknowingly to attempt to become more of that thing. If your family loves that you're obedient or giving with your time or your money, then you emphasize that part of yourself because we're gluttons for affection and you get addicted to those feelings of acknowledgement when you do what people desire. You, for so long, cater to that fantasy or mold yourself into that object of desire that you lose any conception of what you find beautiful in yourself. I had to deprioritize thinking so much about what people loved when they loved me. And I had to deprioritize loving people in the way that they needed to be loved and instead begin to think about who I really was, what I really love about me, what I find interesting about my own mind, what I find desirable about my own body, what brings me joy in my private solitude about the way I work things out. And it wasn't a matter of discovering her because that would be to say that the years of work that I've done and the years of work that we, you and I have done together came to naught. It was remembering, remembering when I was a child, how proud I felt of myself when I brought home all A's or when I finished two books in one week or how much I used to stretch back my face in the mirror to try to see what it would look like when I had cheekbones. And now when I look in the mirror and see that they've grown in so structured and beautifully, it was how I always show up for me or how I didn't make excuses for myself or how I saw things for my life and for my own happiness, things I really wanted materially and mentally and physically. And I strove all the time and I'm still striving. It was how I didn't fixate on sadness when there was so much sadness to be fixated upon. It was how, when I could finally make up my mind about people who had hurt me, I could let them go and never, ever, ever call them back or harbor one ounce of resentment towards them. And those were the things that I held close to in this time. The things that I've been thinking on carrying me through the day. And I realized that if I could just continue to mind those things, to remember who I really was, to remember who I really am, then maybe the fact that people change so much and they decide on you every other day what they'd like or dislike about you, what's good enough for them and what falls short, what you did or didn't do, how many times you didn't show up or you fell a day late or dollar short, how many times you give and it will go completely unacknowledged, or when you do everything to be a good daughter or a good sister or a good mother or a good girlfriend, or wife, a good husband, or brother, or partner, or friend, or cousin, or coworker, or colleague, and yet what's highlighted and emphasized is your inadequacy. Maybe with so much of that that goes on, and it goes on and on and on, the perpetual deficit that that question engenders when you ask, what do people love when they love me? If so many times I'm not enough, and if I could fixate instead on something fulfilling, to know who I really am, to reconcile with what I really lack, to exalt what is truly special, aside from the mask and the costume and the performance and the pining. And if I gave a little bit more time to that person, if I gave a little bit more grace, if I gave her a little bit more time to grow up and become somebody who really, really loved herself, then not only would it not matter so much what people loved when they loved me, but maybe I could also save her some time 
some energy, some money, some therapy of all the undoing that it takes when you begin to reckon with all that you've overlooked and all of the terrible things that you allowed from the people you had been trying to love because you were so desperate for that answer. And I think that that conversation and that dialogue that I had been having with myself over this quarter of a year became especially critical because over the last few months, I had begun to feel the effects of that dance of what do I love about me and what do others love about me and is any of it enough to make me feel okay? And that, along with the state of the world, along with responsibility, along with personal and societal expectation, along with position and relationship and work, all of it began to weigh on me so much that I had to ask myself that question because I said, I have to put something down. If I can't be everything to everyone, then I either have to try to be more to myself or forsake myself entirely. And I think that women in particular will come to this crossroads at work, in motherhood, anywhere where expectation is going to reveal where your loyalties truly lie. And when the expectation and responsibility and the job of being me came to that crossroads, I realized how many times in my life I had experienced that same crossroads and had such a low sense of self-loyalty, how easily I had abandoned myself for the opportunity to be what somebody else needed and just how easily it comes to us that we must have learned it over generations and time how easy it is to throw yourself away for the possibility of love from another and you find yourself shaped by the world and the people that you love and try to love shaped by the judgments of people that you hate and hate you and i called this episode on tenderness not in the way that many people might have assumed in that sort of light sexy, loving touch that you give to a lover tenderly, but rather after you've experienced and undergone some real pain, that feeling that's soft to the touch when you press on your skin or sleep on the wrong side, that sort of aching, a pain that's not life or death, but it's so persistent and it stays with you hurting. And for some of us, it never, never climaxes even into a place where we acknowledge it. Some of us do it our whole lives and we disappear and we get so used to being disrespected or unacknowledged or neglected or forgotten. And we tell ourselves that it's because of how hard we love. Recently, I went through an excruciating experience and I got my wisdom tooth removed. And I thought when I used to ask people why they called it a wisdom tooth, they would tell me that it's because you grow it in when you're getting wiser. Though most people get it when they're 15 to 21 years old. And I'm beginning to think that they call it a wisdom tooth because when you're getting it, it hurts and it begins to move everything around. It changes the foundation of your body. And to remove it is so painful. To heal it when it's gone requires such a painstaking care and vigilance because once it's gone, you feel a hole in the place that it was. And until it heals, you're constantly reminded that it's there and you have to watch over it to make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to do and it has to be clean and it has to be maintained. And I think that's why they call it a wisdom tooth. Because when you come into an understanding of what, of who you really are, of what it really costs to love yourself and others, it takes such a vigilance, such a care, and it leaves you so tender and it grows you up and it makes you stand a little bit straighter and it foundationally rebuilds you because it takes so much patience and so much thought and so much time to remember who you really are. And then from that remembering to really love who you really are, to forgive others for the ways 
that they forsook that person and to love them anyway. And if you're right there with me, as I know you are, after this time that has taken so much of us and this era that has made us stand still and reflect on what's really what, then I'm sure it's left you tender. And that's why I've come with you today. If you need to be handled with care, if you need to be told that there's nothing wrong with you, if you if you get weary, as we all get weary, I've come because I thought you need a little tenderness. Now we're gonna get into these questions because I know that's your favorite part. Dear Viv, I've heard that obsession is often confused with love. What are your thoughts? How do you know the difference? I've been in a mode of fixation. And I find that obsession and fixation are really good indicators for when our intuition knows that love is not present. You know, one thing my sister told me recently that an older man told her is that whenever somebody tells you something that is so deeply complicated, when they tell you a story that you have to piece together, it's a lie because the truth doesn't take that much. The truth is often so straightforward, it's cutting. We know that. I think when our intuition, meaning when we see things as they truly are, but we desire a different outcome, I have my friend Gerald, he used to say, you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. That's when obsession inserts itself and we become fixated on the object of our desire because we want to believe that the way that something is, is not what it really is. It's when you find yourself stalking and calling or interpreting messages or trying to be a sleuth trying to piece together the things that somebody's told you and decide if they're respectful or affectionate. We wanna understand the way things really are, but not at the expense of the way that we want them to be. Love bears peace. Even when the conduit through which that peace comes is tumultuous and frustrating, sometimes argumentative or passionate, the end is peace. The end is wholeness, the end is understanding. One of the things I had to learn recently over the last few years of my life was how much love does not operate in confusion. How much and how often people use confusion to control a situation because there's no love there. Because love exists in the absence of control. And when we love, we have this willingness to relinquish control to the higher operation of what's going on, the higher spiritual principle of love. And we want to do the mental gymnastics of trying to understand something that if you've ever truly been loved is so naturally revealed. Obsession is draining, fixation is draining. And it happens either when we know that something is not what it appears to be or when we are deeply impatient and cannot wait for something to reveal itself naturally over time. Any time that I've been obsessive is because I was operating from a level of mistrust or distrust in the object of my obsession. It's sort of like when you're waiting to find out certain news. You're waiting to find out if you got into college. You're waiting to find out if the check has been deposited. You're waiting to find out if you got the job and you keep refreshing the page you just keep refreshing the page you keep checking your email and it's because you don't really trust that that good thing is happening or that it's coming or you need it so badly so you're vulnerable to it so you're fixating and obsessing over it and that's the same thing with people there are people that in my life I've stopped talking to friends even and without any worry in my mind or my heart I knew that I knew that I knew that somewhere down the line at some point or sometime they would would come back because I knew that I knew that I knew they love me. There are people that I know, I know that I know that if I call them up and if I have a need, that they will try as best they can to meet my need. And those are the first people I call because I know that they love me. Because when you've sharpened your intuition and got past insecurity and distrust from past experience, you really do know that you know that you know when you're loved. There are certain people I know they have no love for me. They couldn't because all action is pointing to the evidence of a lack of love. And I could fixate and obsess all day 
I could, I could want it to be one way, but it's the other way. And I think that I'm just now coming to this point in my life where I respect myself enough. It's why that self-love is so critical and understanding people for who they really, really are so that you don't have to obsess and fixate and try to fix. We, in this era of manifestation and name it and claim it and get exactly what you want and put a picture of your house in front of your bed at night so that when you wake up, it's the first thing you see is this dream house. When people live in this fantasy world in which desire is the only conduit for attainment, all I have to do is want it enough. Instead of living destiny, what I believe of God-given work, of higher power, of things beyond our control, then it makes sense that people confuse obsession with love because you're thinking, if I can just want it enough, if I can just fixate on it enough, then no matter how much my mind, my body, my pockets, my friends, my mother is telling me this is not good for you, I can still just do the hard work of wanting it so badly that I can turn it into love. And once I turn it into love in my mind, I can excuse any pain that it's causing me and I can justify its presence in my life for as long as I want it to be here or as long as I can stand the pain that it's causing me until the object of my obsession either disappears into thin air as it so often does or hurts me so badly that even I cannot deny that this cannot be love. And now I have no one to blame. Anything, and this is a cliche, but it's also a truth. Things that are truly yours, I mean truly, truly belong to you, will not pass you by. And that doesn't mean that they exist in your life on this linear plane where you can have them for always because there's ebbs and flows and there's things that we have to be prepared for before we receive them, et cetera, et cetera. My mom used to tell me when I was a kid, something that it, I didn't learn until I was a woman, is that nothing stolen can be kept. And anything that you try to keep, that you've had to steal, has to be obsessed over and watched with such a vigilance that it almost robs, it does surely rob you of all of the peace and happiness that it had promised to bring you in the first place. And this is something that I know that I know that I know. One of those things that I have the scars to show for it and can tell you that obsession and love don't coexist. I encourage you to read Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. The first time I read that when I was 15 years old, I think it was when I'd be, I had this, the smallest slivering of understanding that would then later be solidified by experience that love was supposed to be easy, that I knew I was being loved in the presence of ease, that good things could come with ease and learning to believe that, that I was easy to love, that love could come easily, that peace could be easy, sisterhood could be easy, things could be, could come with a level of ease. The work it took me to believe that was more meaningful work and harder work than all of the time it took me to obsess over trying to obtain what was not mine. Dear Viv, how do I open my heart up to tenderness? I often find in my current relationships, both platonic and romantic, I can no longer be soft or vulnerable with them, and I don't receive it well when they are with me. Any advice on how to be a better lover and friend? Sometimes it baffles my mind. It, it really truly stops me when I think about the odds against wholeness in this life. Tenderness is something that when you think about it, children take so easily too and they desire it so much they want to be hugged and loved and touched and cuddled and they want to be seen and listened to and they demand it i mean they literally if you've ever spent even a short amount of time over a child the way that they demand to be dealt with gently the way that if you are even the slightest bit irritated or frustrated by them they act in extremes or how when they have something to say they they need it to be listened to they're the kind of creatures children that demand that they be handled with care and i think that the more that we're not handled with care 
and the more that life kind of just throws us by the wayside. We, we come to recoil at acts of tenderness and we don't even know why. I grew up in a place where people didn't really touch. We were always discouraged from touching anybody. In school, we didn't really touch. And even when I was in my home, I had a childhood home that was so combative. It was so harsh. There was just so much harshness that we didn't really touch. I think about this, when I was young, when I was really young, my, my eldest sister, Crystal, she sucked her finger, her ring finger. And her favorite thing to do whenever she was sucking her finger was to hold my hand with her other hand. And whenever I was angry with her, I would snatch my hand away. And she was the person that I always snuggled up to and that I always held her hand. But I remember when we went to separate schools and when we got into like the seventh and eighth grade, we had turned into such opposite personalities. I mean, we're literally a year and five days apart. She's the other half of my Libra scale. We, we came somehow, some way, the harshness of the world and other people judging us and us judging ourselves. We became so severed from one another when we used to be fashioned at the hip. I mean, people thought we were twins. And I think that for my whole childhood, she was, she was my source more than my parents. She was my source of tenderness. I was never one of those kids that slept in the bed with their parents or and because there were so many of us, we didn't really get picked up a lot. She was my hand to hold against the low tide of the world, as June Jordan said. And when we became combative and just frustrated with each other's personalities and the way that we operated. And I mean, this lasted for <sighs> literally a decade. This sense of harshness that the world had projected onto us that then we put on one another. And it robbed us of so much tenderness that going forward, I didn't like to be touched. She was the one person I trusted to like hold my hand. And when she stopped holding my hand, it felt like I didn't want to hold hands with the world. I didn't want to be seen touching anybody. I didn't want to hold hands with boys walking down the street. I didn't want to be arm in arm with anyone because I didn't really trust anybody to handle me tenderly in that way. And it became a display of weakness. And it's only when I've looked back now, remembering that time in my life, the last time I felt truly tender with my sister. And then I thought about how in college, when I met my best friend Laura, who's Colombian, and if you know anything about most Latin people, they touch so much. Like she's always giving kisses on the cheek and wants to hold your hand when you're walking down the street. And I used to think about how in college, I was so frustrated, I would get so tense. And not at when she would hold my hand or touch my cheek or just be soft and tender towards me, but I would get so frustrated with myself. I'd get frustrated, I didn't realize that this Bible Belt upbringing and that the harshness of my household and violation for men and all of these factors had compounded themselves so deeply that when someone came with some real softness, she's so soft, <laughs> she's the softest person, when someone came with some, some peace to bring me, that I had so many barriers to accepting it that it broke me down because I could not understand why. And I think this is where the remembering comes in. I think first we have to remember what, as a child, really made us feel loved and free, unashamed, receptive. And I think that we have to pinpoint the times in our life that broke that, that eroded that, that violated that trust that we had with the world and those around us. And I think when we find them and when we see them clearly and when we stand in front of ourselves and acknowledge those things, acknowledge that we couldn't outsmart them and we couldn't outrun them. And I think that this is the most critical part. We have to declare that we have a desire. I remember I asked somebody recently, I said, I said, do you wanna be loving? Is it important to you? to love. I don't, I didn't ask, do you know how, or are you any good at it? Because if I'm asking that question, I can almost deduce you're lousy. It's okay that you're hard hearted and that your fists coil up when someone touches you. I remember the first week that I was at Columbia walking down the street and a girl 
this white girl that I had science class with or something. She came up behind me, she ran up behind me and she tapped me on the shoulder and I almost turned around and swung on her. And I couldn't explain to her that where I come from, you don't run just run up on people behind them. I had had such a high level of vigilance and I had to understand even then at 18, there was nothing wrong with her wanting to greet me and there was nothing wrong with me. I was a product of my environment. And I think that a lot of self-love comes in that phrase, there is nothing wrong with me. I think when we begin from a place of self-forgiveness and when we allot ourselves some tenderness to say, you know what, it's a hard world, shit gets weird. We are in Babylon and it is freaky and frustrating and cold and confusing. And the rules change every day, what's okay and what's not okay. And I have to say every day, there's nothing wrong with you. Even when I'm pent up in anxiety and frustration, I say, this is a frustrating situation. And I justify my own response. But then I say, but I desire to be free of this. Sometimes you have to tell your friends, you have to tell your lovers, I'm no good at this. You gotta meet me where I'm at. I wanna be better at this. Nobody showed me how, or something happened to me and it fucked me up big time. And I think this is where room for miracles come in because the way that I've learned that that's enough, the loudest in my life, and my closest friends and my lovers have taught me that just the desire to love is enough to be met with such an immense patience. It'll blow your mind how much the small acts of trust can breed a big sense of love. I've often written that I've hated, I've been hated and withstood. People that have judged me and been malicious and they've hated me and I've moved through it seamlessly and gracefully and coldly and uncaringly. But when somebody just loves you and tries for you every time I've come undone, it undoes the worst of the worst things that have happened to us. You have enough tenderness. You have enough desire for tenderness just in asking this question that you're halfway there. You're halfway there. Dear Viv, my question is in relation to my body. After speaking with a doctor, I found out that I may have PCOS. This is a very hard process for me as I've never really had a healthy relationship to my body. Along with the fear of infertility, I'm also afraid that this condition along with my other flaws make me unlovable. How do I show tenderness and love to myself and my body despite its deficiencies and shortcomings? These words, deficiencies and shortcomings. We are who we are, who we are. I think that even under the best of circumstances, in our pursuit of health and consciousness and beauty, and to be the highest, most pristine, trim, efficient version of ourselves, we lose sight in that sprint of who we really, really are. And I think this is why I say that this process begins with remembering who you are. I mean, from a kid, I don't think I'll ever be an extremely fast runner. I think that I could lose 50 pounds, go on steroids, become the highest level of my athletic capability, and I don't think it would increase my speed very much. Because when I was a kid, a small kid, big head, little arms. I was not ever even close to the fastest person in my class. I was not second, I was not third. I don't have a great memory. As smart as I am, and I was a smart ass kid, I would not be best in the spelling bee. And it wasn't because I didn't know the words and what they meant. I just couldn't remember. I'm still bad with names. I'm terrible with faces. And it's one of those things that though other people, it makes them feel small. I know it does. When, they, when I see them, it frustrates them a great deal that, I mean, I meet more people than the average person has to meet, don't get me wrong, in my line of work. And it's difficult to remember every name and every face and make everybody feel like a one-to-one -one relationship. But it's something I like about myself. I, I like how my mind can do incredible things easily and do simple things with great difficulty. I love that for me because that's that's who I have always been. Simple task as a child completely eluded me. I mean completely. Things like double dutch, I sucked at. Swimming, difficult. But high level mathematics, accounting, 
history, critical thinking, speech writing. I mean, these were things that as a child, I just zoomed right through them. A, 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 A. And I came to love my mind. And what people might be like, this is a deficiency, this is a shortcoming. I guess, I suppose. I think that we have to stop measuring ourselves against the ideal of ourselves. We are who we are. And I like me today. There, there was something that they used to say in church all the time when I was growing up. And they used to say, I'm not who I ought to be, but I'm not who I used to be. And they repeated that so much in church. And it was supposed to be this thing that was like, I'm on this redemptive arc that God came and got me from where I was, but I'm not quite who I should be. And I think that I loved Islam because of its emphasis on death. I think that it's one of the, my my deepest, deepest loves for Islam is the way that they emphasize the bleedingness of this present life and the way that at any time it could be completely over. And so you, you have to learn to prioritize the daily prayer and daily righteousness and daily charity. And you have to meet yourself where you are, sinner and all, to exalt God and minimize your personal capability. Because if you don't, there'll be no way to find joy. I mean, none. You will lose because you're never gonna be who you ought to be in this ascent. And you know what? The, the older you get, the worse it becomes. All of a sudden you wake up and you got some condition that's four generations deep in your family. You have high blood pressure, you have high cholesterol, and your joints hurt. My sister's 25 years old and she's always telling me about how much her knees hurt. I was like, I got bad knees. She's 25, hasn't even begun to live. And there's already this thing she's gonna have to be vigilant over forever. You are who you are who you are. That's number one. And as for the second part of your question about being unlovable, let me tell you a story about me in high school. When I was 17, I would, I would often go to Atlanta all throughout the time I was in high school. I hated growing up in California when I moved there in ninth grade. And so I would constantly go back to Atlanta to visit my friends and spend the summer. And I was at home when I was 16, visiting for a summer. And I remember one of my best friends at the time, Deara, she used to throw these wild house parties. And I had been getting to know, I had met him once in passing real quickly and was like, whatever. Started talking to him on Twitter, this guy, Trey. And I used to say to myself, I would just obsess over this boy. I was like, wow, I'm really feeling him. He's so funny. We have so many things in common. He has some great taste in music. He's he's the kind of nigga I like. That's what I thought when I was, I was 16. And she invites Trey. Maybe, I don't know, two hours before the party, we're talking about what we're gonna wear and what we're gonna do. And I'm telling her, I'm like, yeah, I'm really feeling this guy. I can't wait to see him. Haven't seen him all summer, this guy, Trey. And my homegirl's like, oh, Trey with the, with the hand. And I didn't even know what the hell she was talking about. I completely ignored it. I was just like, it went over my head, didn't register. Later on, when he enters the party, six foot three, fine as hell, dark skin, Jamaican. I'm walking across the room and all of a sudden I noticed on his left hand, he has half of a thumb. And I was like, oh, this is much be what she's talking about. Like he had no thumb. Later on, I inquired, it turns out when he was like, I don't know, two or three years old, he had his thumb cut off in an, on an exercise bike. It was like some horrific accident when he was a child. So he grew up, never really had a thumb on that hand, drove, DJ'd, did everything in the world without his thumb. You would think for, for somebody, you're the popular girl in school, you got the fine ass friends, you have this, you have that. You're living life to the fullest. For some people, it's a deal breaker, right? And I'm pretty sure having talked to him, Trey went through his life knowing that he would experience a level of bullying or harassment or teasing or exclusion because of this handicap. Didn't stop him from being a lifeguard, didn't stop him from being on a basketball team, didn't stop him from fixing cars or doing any of the things that he loved to do. But you just know, you just know in your mind for somebody else, this is going to keep them from fully embracing me. But when I got to know him, that summer. And I'll never forget, we were sitting in his garage, it was like 2 a.m. playing music. These guys were like cleaning their guns or something. There's always guns in every single story about the South. I remember holding his hand the first time I kissed him. And even though we've gone our super separate ways in this lifetime, and he's married and has a child, that was the thing that I most loved about him because I knew when I was holding his hand, 
when I got scared or frustrated with life or lost or confused. And for the next year and a half or two years that I would come back to Atlanta, come back to what felt like home. I knew I was with somebody I loved because of the way it felt when I held his hand. That if I was blindfolded in a desert, lost, and I felt that hand in my hand, I knew it, could, it was one person and it couldn't be anybody else. And the reason I tell you this story is not because this turned into some magnanimous lifetime love or because it made his life any better or grander, but because for the thing that you think is the deal breaker, is the unlovable thing, is the ultimate shortcoming, there's a love for that. I think that in all of the fucked upness of the world, the thing that is the great equalizer like nothing else, and the thing that is so precious about finding out who you really are against all that you hope to be or pretended to be is that when you find that person, there's love. And it's not always the love that you expect, but it's always the love that you need. When I was young, I felt like my father didn't love me. But over the course of my life, I had godparents and uncles and big brothers in the neighborhood and my actual big brother and professors and men who took me in and showed me the measure of a man because there was a love for somebody that felt unlovable as a daughter. I remember when my thighs filled out and I felt heavy all the time and I gained not a freshman 15, I gained like a freshman 50. And I remember feeling like a stranger to my own body. And I had a boyfriend in college who would just kiss me all over because for that body that I had at the time, there was a love. We are who we are. And I would be lying to you if I said that I had always loved my body, that I had always loved my mind, my hands, my feet. I have big ass calf muscles. I have to get knee-high boots custom-made. I would be lying if I said I always had such a sense of tenderness and kindness towards myself because I'm still learning it every day. But even when I did not show up for me and my proclivities and conditions and, as you say, deficiencies and shortcomings, there was always someone waiting to fill that gap. All they wanted to do was be allowed. There is a love for who you really are. And if you operate with the slightest sense of adventure, and if you look to the world with the slightest sense of wonder, and you operate in a curiosity over a fear, even a little bit, because that's what it takes, it just takes a little bit, you'd be stunned to find all the ways that there's a love. And it's not bottom tier, whatever's left in the box kind of love. And when you operate in that mindset too often, that's what you get. That somebody, anybody love me, then you get anybody. But there is a specific, somebody who will see the thing, the gap in the tooth, or your real hair, or your fupa, or whatever it is that you said, I don't, I don't think I can love me with this. Somebody will pick you up and love that thing specifically. I think for too long and so much of the cultural language around self-love is built to love ourselves despite who we are. And we're told that people love us despite who we are. But when you find out who you really are, I think that for me, self-love has become saying there's nothing wrong with who I am and literally saying it out loud all the time. There's nothing wrong with me. Do I have flaws, frustrations? Am I irrational sometimes? Can I be cynical and gossipy? But there's nothing fundamentally wrong with me. There are so many things with, wrong with the world and the way that he and I have interacted over time and the things that he's brought to my table that I've rejected and hated and battled with and always will. But we are made to believe, especially black people, especially women, we are made to believe there is something wrong with us from the day we are born. And people do the work of breaking us down for so long and pointing us out and diagnosing us and putting things on us that that system operates efficiently by the time we're 15 and 16 years old. We assume that role so effortlessly as self-critic and judge over who we are that it doesn't even take the world telling us 
we're ugly or we're too much of this or too little or not enough of that, that our insides don't work properly and our outsides aren't working fast enough or good enough. Maybe one day I'll be everything I ought to be. Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe death comes fast and easy, but I am what I am. And I believe deeply that there's happiness available to her today. I believe that when I walk away from this microphone and I go out into the world, it's not even noon yet. It's 66 degrees. I believe that there's a pleasant interaction waiting. I believe that there's an opportunity to learn. I believe that there's somebody who's going to handle me with some tenderness. I believe that there's a job that's going to handle me with some respect. I believe that there's a friend that's going to handle me with some acknowledgement. There's a partner that's going to give me some romance. I believe that. I have to. Today, every pound overweight, every hair out of place, every forgetfulness or short fuse or word I say out of turn, I believe that there's a love. I believe that there's a correction. I think that that's what religion really is. I think it's, it's believing that there is so much ill present in the world and you can see it plain with your eyes. But I think that there's something inside of me that believes that there is a correcting force Love has been finding that correcting force in me and amplifying the voice that says, it's okay, it gets better. There's nothing wrong with you. It's enough. There's possibility, there's hope, there's potential, there's joy. And maximizing it until it can shut out the voice that's ever present and all around, both within myself and others that says, there's no love for somebody like you. And I'm, I'm not, I couldn't lie to you. It's going to be easier for somebody like me to say that because I operate, I have a great sense of beauty and I have a lot of power and I've amassed prestige and influence and I got a little bit of cash in my pocket. And it's a lot easier to say that shit today after years of exercising and doing ab workouts and growing my hair down to my ass and saving up, it's a little bit easier to tell myself, you know what, you can take more than just what you can get. It took years and it gets a little bit easier over time. And if circumstances were different and shifted and changed, it'd be harder. And I admit that, but it's all ingrained in a belief system because I'm talking as somebody that remembers being 11 years old, 12 years old, and I remember just feeling forgettable. I remember feeling like nobody loved me. I remember feeling 19 and feeling too complicated or too smart to love. I remember feeling 20 and feeling too fat to love. I remember feeling 21 and feeling too young to love. And I, I remember being a child around my father and just wholesale wishing I was somebody else. But if I didn't operate in the possibility of better, sometimes all I had was the possibility that there's gotta be a better love. There's gotta be somebody or something that'll meet me just with who I am right now. Not confident and insecure. Somebody who won't make it feel like it's a crime that I don't know what I'm doing. Somebody that'll make it okay that I don't know how to be sexy or I don't know how to be graceful. Somebody that'll like that I talk too much and often at the wrong time. And I was met with such a grace and I've discovered abundance in finding how often there's a love for who I really am. That's all the time that we have for today. This never gets easier to do but it's never not rewarding. People sometimes write me in these long stretches and intervals of time and they ask me, is Ask Viv over? Is it over? And I think that one commitment, despite all the things I've ever said about, oh, it'll come out here and oh, I'll do it then. And I think the one commitment that I've allowed myself to make that is as long as I have something to say, as long as I need to say something, I'll be right here with you in all of the forms that it takes. I've got a new newsletter out, Love Vivian, that you can subscribe to on my website, biancavivian.com. I've got projects and plans and questions and hopes <laughs> brewing, as I always do. But mostly, 
I'm trying to take it easy. And that's, I think, one of the harder feats I've taken on. I'm hoping you're taking it easy. And if not, take it as easy as you can. I wish you more life and more love. I'm Bianca Vivion, and if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv. Uh, 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 uh,